I think it's important that we understand the role of artificial intelligence in the workforce in general, mainly because whenever you, I like to say whenever you consider um, inserting technology into a traditionally human-driven process, you still are going to need people. Are you a business leader looking for strategies and tactics to help you navigate leadership and HR challenges as you scale? Each week on While We Were Working, we bring you our 35 plus years of experience doing exactly this for companies just like yours. For more game-changing HR and leadership insights and to connect with us, check us out at whilewewereworking.com. Hey, what's going on? And thank you for tuning into this episode of While We Were Working. It's the show that helps you become a better leader of your small business or small team. As always, I'm Joy Price, one of the co-hosts here of the show and also founder of Jumpstart HR and joined with Summer Keytron, who is our awesome co-host and consulting practice manager here at Jumpstart. Say hey, Summer. Hi, Joey. Hey, everybody out there, and welcome to our special guest. Yes, yes, yes. Speaking of special guests, we've got a great show for you today. We are going to be talking about ADHD accommodations at work and what those look like and how you should be accommodated at your organization if uh, you may be diagnosed with, with ADHD. But first, we want to talk about a brand new book that is that is out there in the world, ready to be consumed and get some wisdom from. Uh, I'm going to do the, the, the long lead up, the, the build anticipation around this. Um, so the person who, who wrote or co-wrote this book, um, I've known her for, I guess it's almost a, a, a year now, I think, um, about a year. And I always admire, um, I admire writers. Um, that's just hands down, I admire writers because I think it takes so much to love something and be so passionate about it that you're willing to not only consume the information about it, but you're willing to put it in a format for other people to grasp and digest and learn along the way. Um, so this person writes in multiple formats. I'll give her the opportunity to share a full bio. But another thing is she's working on a, a cool project that has nothing to do with this book or maybe something to do with the book, but we'll talk about the connections there uh, that is helping people uh, gain access to, to mental health tools. Uh, so without further ado, I want to introduce our guest for the show, Ms. Alexandra Levitt, uh, who is one of the co-writers of the new book called Deep Talent. How to Transform Your Organization and Empower Your Employees Through AI. Alexandra, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me, Joey and Summer. It's great to be here. Well, we're glad you're here. And could you just kind of, for those who, who uh, don't know your background, could you just give sort of your origin story and maybe how I got you to the place of writing this book? Certainly. Well, I became interested in the workforce space when I first graduated from college, I went into communications, actually, and I had been one of those high-achieving college students who thought that I would go out into the business world and be a VP um, by the age of 30, no sweat. 
and uh, that wasn't exactly the way things panned out. I pretty much crashed and burned in my first several jobs. And finally, one of my bosses took pity on me and said that she thought that I was a smart kid that just needed a little bit of professional development. And so she sent me uh, to the Dale Carnegie course, which I don't know if you both are familiar with that or if our uh, listeners are familiar with that. But I learned all about the importance of making a first impression and getting people who you didn't have any authority over to collaborate with you and cooperate with you. And this light bulb went off and I was like, wow, somebody should really clue in other 20 somethings on what they really need to do to be successful in the world of work. And that was when I got my first book idea and wrote the book that was called They Don't Teach Corporate in College. And I published that book and I I kind of intended the book to be sort of a side project uh, because I finally started getting promoted in my career. It only took me about three or four years to get that first promotion. Um, But much to my pleasure and surprise that that book did well. And and the reason it did well really has more to do with demographics than anything else. I'm, I'm at the tail end of a generation that's very small called Generation X, but the generation that's just younger than me is an enormous generation called the Millennials. They were coming out into the workforce making a huge splash. And the HR people all wanted to know, okay, well, what do we do with these Millennials? What are they going to need? They're making all of these demands. (laughs) We need to know how to cope with them. And so I started getting asked to do speaking engagements to the Millennials, for the Millennials, for the managers. And that was when I got into the HR space and trying to make a forecast, as we, we call them in the futurist area, about uh, what we would see the millennials doing as, as they matured into their careers. And over time, I, I got additional education and became a workforce futurist, which really just means somebody who looks at trends that are, are percolating up through um, business, through society, and tries to make a determination about what has the greatest potential to cause disruption in the workforce. And that's what I've been doing for about the last 10 years. Over time, I I obviously got a little older. I expanded beyond 20-somethings. But it's been a a really wild ride, particularly in the last five years, um, immediate pre-pandemic, pandemic, pandemic, post-pandemic. And uh, one of the the things I'm the most excited about now is is this opportunity around talent intelligence and how technology has, has developed to such a point where we can really ascertain the skills that people are capable of doing based on what they've done in the past and really kind of zero in on what their potential is to do really exciting things in the future that they might not think they're able to do, that their managers might not know they're able to do, their organizations might not think they're able to do, and uh, really expands the opportunity for people to have more meaningful careers than we ever thought possible. And uh, I think that's overall an exciting time to be employed. Um, So overall, I would say I have an optimistic viewpoint, and I'm glad to be here talking about these things today. That's incredible. And so this isn't your first rodeo with regard to uh, writing and uh, predicting trends, but your book centers around something that is almost by the day becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger snowball of a topic. And that's the role of artificial intelligence uh, in, in the, I don't even want to say the HR function, but artificial intelligence as it relates to people at work. Mm-hmm. Um, in a nutshell, if you could kind of synthesize for someone who might be new to this discussion, why is this conversation important? Well, I think it's important that we understand the role of artificial intelligence in the workforce in general, mainly because whenever you, I like to say, whenever you consider 
um, inserting technology into a traditionally human-driven process, you still are going to need people. You need people involved kind of at all steps of that process. So you need a human being to figure out where the AI goes. You need a human being to oversee the AI's role in the process. You need somebody to oversee um, that role. You need someone to fix the AI when it's not working as intended. You need someone to figure out how to redeploy it. You need someone to explain its role to decision makers. So this is a lot of people that need to be involved. So when we have the kind of misconception that we're going to automate large swaths of the workforce, with artificial intelligence or other types of automation, um, this is really kind of a severe misconception. And we already kind of see examples of this happening. And I'll, I'll give you guys an example that just happened this week. There's a lot of hubbub around ChatGPT as just a very, very current example. So ChatGPT is a chat bot. A lot of people say it's a more sophisticated chat bot that it creates writing or creates sentences um, based on information that it has available at its disposal. But I write for the Wall Street Journal, so I get a lot of pitches from PR people. And this week, I've been getting a lot of pitches from ChatGPT. The problem is the PR people are attaching their names and their emails to pitches that are being created by ChatGPT, but they're not reading them first. And the pitches don't make any sense. And so this is an exact example of what I'm just talking about, where there's no human oversight. The PR people are not reading the, the pitches that are coming out from ChatGPT. And their reputations are being negatively impacted by the fact that I'm reading this pitch and I'm attributing this bad pitch to the PR person whose name is attached. Now, this might have you know, no consequences in this case, because I'm just saying, gosh, what idiots that they're not reading these pitches before they're sending them out. But if you think about it, this could have massive implications from both an ethical and a legal standpoint, because at the end of the day, you as the HR rep or the company that is deploying this artificial intelligence technology, you are the one who is liable if something very bad happens on your watch because of a technology you're using. You cannot blame the vendor. You cannot really blame anybody but yourself. And so I think as a futurist, I would have to advise <laughs> that I'm going to see more and more of these situations happening in the near future. And so when it comes to AI work, AI can be our friends, they can be our partners. Absolutely, they're a wonderful thing to use. I mean, this whole book. Deep Talent that I've written is all about leveraging this technology to our advantage and taking this opportunity to explore the possibilities, but you do have to be aware of the drawbacks too. And I think right now it's kind of like the Wild West. Just because we can do something with AI doesn't necessarily mean that we should. Summer, jump in there. Thoughts, questions, observations. What do you think? Certainly. Well, I'm so fascinated with this topic, and I think the timing in terms of the release of the book could not have been better with the you know, the recent release and you know just interest in AI as a whole. But I'm so curious, what was it that prompted your desire to write on this topic? And maybe you can even follow it up with saying, you know, what are some real gems uh, that folks who are maybe on the fence about picking up the book, like why, why would you suggest they take a read? It's a good question. And I have to say that I'm a, a huge fan of practical solutions to really sticky problems. And in this particular space, one thing that I've been really struggling with, and, and as have many in our space, is the skills gap problem. 
And the fact of the matter is that we have been in a situation um, in the developed world where we have seen kind of these persistent skills gaps where it's this weird situation where companies will continue to lay tons of people off at the same time as having open positions that just sit open for like months and months and months and months. And you're like, how do these two things go together? Like, how can both of those things be true? That we have these skills gaps and we have these open positions and yet we're we're laying all these people off. Like, shouldn't we be able to figure out a way to redeploy the people that we have into these jobs that we need filled? So there's this matching problem that we seem to have. It's not an HR problem. It's not a workflow problem. And so there's been this problem that's existed as long as I've been in this space. And what made me intrigued to write this book and to work with this company, Eightfold, um, the, the CEO and president are the co-authors of the book, Deep Talent, is that they had come up with an, an, a solution based on artificial intelligence that could solve this problem. And the way talent intelligence platforms work are that they solve the matching problem by figuring out what people can do besides what they're already doing. So it opens up the possibilities of what people are capable of so that they can, in fact, be redeployed into different types of positions that companies need filled. And the way they do that is that they scrape information, all of the public information that is available, both from an internal and an external perspective. So what people have done in the past in your company, what people have done in the past outside of your company, what's available on LinkedIn. There are so many billions of career paths that people have taken that they're able to look at all kinds of what were called skills adjacencies. So if you're good at algebra, you're also likely to be good at calculus and all of these crazy associations that human beings understandably wouldn't necessarily make that bartenders are good sales reps because they ha both have interpersonal skills. But the way when we look at resumes, I mean, we look at them in a very linear way. Well, if you've been a project manager in the past, we're going to look for you because we need a project manager in the future. Well, that narrows your talent pool really, really significantly. And talent intelligence technology allows you to just be much, much broader. And therefore, the potential of people just expands exponentially and allows you to redeploy people in a much more efficient way. And so I was intrigued by the fact that they had kind of solved for this matching problem. And in answer to your second question, um, what would tip people over toward wanting to actually read the book? I would suggest that people would want to, in, in addition to what I just said, which is that it shows people how they can deploy talent intelligence. I would suggest that reading about some of the public sector implementations will be really inspiring because let's say you're a company and, and you guys focus on a lot of smaller companies. What's super inspiring about what Eightfold has done is they started with the public sector. We don't think about government as being cutting edge at all. <laughs> when we think about people who are pushing the needle, we do not think about U.S. states, for example. But the U.S. states in this case were some of the first organizations to use talent intelligence to solve the skills gap. And they were able to get organizations that were thinking of le leaving their states to stay put because they found people within those states who um, were th also thinking of leaving the states because they couldn't get jobs. They killed two birds with one stone. They kept the organizations in the state. They kept the people in the state and they put the people to work on behalf of those organizations. 
They wouldn't have been able to do that without talent intelligence. And so if you're a small company who thinks you can't use some of the same strategies, all you have to do is look at who would have ever thought the public sector would be innovative. And to me, that was very inspiring. So unfortunately, it's like, that's one of those things you got to read the book in order to learn that. (laughs) Yes, yes. So another thing that you mentioned or that's covered in the book, um, you talk about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging uh, and the role that um, artificial intelligence can play. Uh, with this being, um, you know, International Women's Month, uh, could you talk maybe about DEI more broadly and then even maybe the roles that uh, companies can use uh, technology to help bring the pay equity or even skills equity or whatever opportunities are out there? Um, to give women better equal footing uh, at work with with men. Yeah, and and I I love that you asked that, Joey, because I think that sometimes AI and 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 it's true that AI can be biased in and of itself because a lot of technology and AI is included in this is programmed by a very small segment of the human population, um, specifically. Um, those who are te- technically Caucasian to Asian men between the ages of 25 and 40. So it's true that some of that bias can be baked into the development of this technology, and we do have to be on the lookout for that. But I think that does get a lot of play. And what doesn't sometimes get as much play is that AI can help us be less biased by taking out some of the um, opportunities to be biased during, let's say, the candidate selection process. And by only judging people on skills, as opposed to judging people based on their names or, let's say, subconscious things that come across in interviews. And we've already seen, I mean, the, the technology that's taken off the fastest when it comes to preventing unconscious bias has been in the recruitment space. Uh, we see uh, all of this technology coming through um, and really kind of helping us um, level the playing field. Uh, That's been happening for for several years. But I think talent intelligence in helping to hire people for skills really does kind of impact people uh, when they're coming into an organization. And I think that really the results sort of speak for themselves in terms of democratizing internal opportunities. When you put internal opportunities available on and what we call the internal talent marketplace. And you specifically say, we are looking for someone with this competency. And all you have to say is this competency. You don't have to have a specific type of education. You don't have to have a specific career path. You don't have to have been working for this manager. You don't have to be recommended by this person. It's truly a democratized opportunity you can see that people will, all kinds of people will throw their hats in the ring. And I think it really does aid with people having access to opportunities that they otherwise would not have access to. And in the book, we describe in a lot of ways how organizations were actually able to move their DEI um, metrics with respect to having, let's say, um, a greater percentage of their senior leaders as women, as uh, people of color, um, because that opportunities were actually made available and there weren't so many roadblocks to getting those opportunities um, in the first place. Because I think a lot of companies say that 
sure, there are opportunities there, but there's just so many things that prevent people from applying to those opportunities that you can say, well, you know, sure, they're available, but are they really transparent? And having an internal talent marketplace where you really are evaluating people purely based on skills, purely based on potential. I think it's easier said than done. And when you're basing it on talent intelligence, it becomes a lot easier. And when you have yeah. an infrastructure to do that. I love it. Easier. So so uh, don't shy away from, I guess the lesson is don't shy away from technology's role in bridging us uh, closer together and exposing people to great opportunities. Because if left to our own devices, <laughs> we probably wouldn't. Uh, all right, f- final final question here. You've mentioned your book, uh, They Don't Teach Corporate in College. And we are uh, nearing the 20-year the milestone of that release. Um, you're a futurist. So if we, if we take this moment in time, 20 years out, what would you want the legacy of deep talent to be? the 20 year legacy of deep talent, I would like to think that the prestige of education has taken um, much more of a backseat and that people are able to get the specific education that they need when they need it to do the job that they need to do at the time. That pedigree has just almost become irrelevant in terms of where you go to school, um, what you go to school for, because everyone is going to change and careers and need to pivot so many times that what you do between the ages of 18 and 22 almost becomes, you need to take an intelligent first step during those years, but it, it's not like it becomes the be all end all for what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and therefore it becomes less of a necessity with respect to where you're going to go, um, what you're going to focus on. So I would like to think that, that in, within the next 20 years that, that it just becomes almost meaningless where you go for those years and what what you do and that you continue to become educated throughout the course of your life and you continue to get different micro credentials and different certifications and that everyone is going to continually need to upskill and reskill themselves um, as market conditions and business requirements change. Um, In fact, that's already happening. And I think some of us that are a little bit older are struggling with it a little bit because that's not the model that we uh, that we we grew up with and it's we're having to make kind of a midlife switch here but i think this is going to be easier for some of the younger generations that will will just come up in this way but i i would like to see i think that society as a whole the the playing field will be a little bit more even and and people will have more opportunities across the board if we're able to do that all right all right uh it's been a pleasure chatting with you alexandra make sure if you're tuning in to check out the book deep talent it's uh, Deep Talent, How to Transform Your Organization and Empower Your Employees Through AI. Alexandra is one of the co-authors there and forward written by Josh Burson, uh, which we didn't get time to talk about him, but people know who he is. Uh, they can they can Google him. This is your time today, Alexandra. So uh, where Gosh. can people find the book and where can people find you? Uh, people can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, any of the the booksellers and feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or alexandralevitt.com. Would love to hear what people think. And also if you're a small business, you might not have the wherewithal to implement like a full talent intelligence platform, but don't think that you can't use some of the same concepts. And in fact, I think the small business way 
of the all hands on deck and in broadly skilling the people who work in your organization. In many ways, small businesses have had this down for a long time. And I would advise you to kind of stick with that uh, because you never know what you're going to have to do tomorrow to succeed as a small business. And I think that in many ways, small businesses have a lot to teach large businesses because uh, redeployment is going to be the name of the game. So keep at what you're doing and uh, look at ways that you can make uh, the, some of these strategies work for your small business. Excellent. Thanks for your time, Alexandra. And uh, we'll drop a link to the book for people to purchase, uh, as well as your socials as well, so that folks can uh, contact you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Summer. Thank you. All right, Summer, how cool was that? Oh, that was amazing. It it was really so great to hear about her thoughts and inspiration. And I think there was a lot of really great takeaways. And I hope folks go out and read the book and check out uh, some of the other books that she's uh, that she's been a part of. It's really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of my uh, default nature to want to talk about the future and so kind of gravitate around folks who are adding value to that conversation. So hopefully uh, you got something out of that conversation and it inspired you to check out the book. Uh, you can get it anywhere, uh, but we'll make sure that there's a link so that you can, can check it out uh, from our show. All right, we'll go ahead and jump into our next segment of Consultants Corner. That's where we go through the uh, trenches of the good, the bad, the ugly about life as an HR pro, life as an HR consultant. Uh, this week, we have a pretty interesting topic that we want to cover. Um, we posted about it or posted about it on, on Instagram, uh, but it's a LinkedIn post, actually. And it is a LinkedIn post from an individual by the name of Julie Harris. Julie Harris is a disability advocate, and um, she brought up something that we do not talk about enough uh, at work, and it's in individuals or employees who have ADHD, and how can we provide reasonable accommodations for those uh, colleagues of ours, and even ourselves, if we uh, are... are, are diagnosed with ADHD. So Summer, could you could you share a little bit about with our audience, um, what's a reasonable accommodation? Where'd that come from? And we can sort of walk through that conversation within the context of this list that Julie has shared. I think this is a great topic for our audience. And if you've been following the show, you may have heard Joey and I talking about on Consultants Corner, um, and maybe even uh, the While We Were Working uh, news uh, segment, where we talk about making accommodations. And to kind of back up for those that aren't familiar, the ADA, or the Adults uh, with Disabilities Act, essentially requires employers to provide what's called a reasonable accommodation to individuals with disabilities. And essentially what this means is that if you have, an, if you have a team member um, or even a candidate uh, who you learn has a disability, then you're required to engage in what's called officially an interactive process. And that's a series of steps where both you, the team member, 
and likely uh, information from the doctor is provided to understand this individual's limitations. And then the discussion then should occur about what types of modifications might help this individual perform the job. Now, I will stop there uh, and mention that the one thing I often hear from small businesses when we're having these conversations, that's too expensive, that's not possible, that's not gonna work, can't do it. And I have to kind of pause and say, like, let's approach this from a different angle. What are ways that we can say yes? Because there is a duty to employers to accommodate unless they can prove that it would cause an undue hardship. And I must say that in all of my years of HR, Joey, there's very few instances out of probably hundreds where I can say it would actually cause an undue hardship. It might be expensive. Mm -hmm. It might be complicated. But I say, do you really want to take that risk of denying somebody with a disability? Uh, that's not a risk I'm comfortable with taking. I'm exactly. No, <laughs> So let's find a way to say yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, and the, the thing about this list that uh, Julie mentioned, she itemizes what you can do to provide an accommodation for somebody who is uh, eligible. And I believe um, with the uh, with the Americans with Disabilities Act, it's a it's two parter. So on one hand, someone can disclose it to you, mm -hmm. but then on the other hand, they don't have to disclose. But if you see kind of like symptoms or um, the potential. Um, you would you would want to create create a lane there for some folks. The thing about this list is, out of the eleven things she mentioned, uh, eight of them are free. So that's got to be the biggest incentive to to make positive change. But also, they're they're free, but some of them are counterculture to the way that we kind of work uh, in the in the states. Um, one of those examples is being a quiet workplace. Well, uh, if you're working in an open office environment or, uh, yeah, open air environment where everyone's not in a cube, they're just kind of out in, the, in a bullpen environment, that is probably not ideal for someone who has, uh, has been diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, and so, but sometimes we also penalize people for wanting to go away and get away and and work out of conference rooms or work at at places that are more quiet some are, are there is there anything on the list that stands out to you as far as like yeah it's free but we kind of penalize people for wanting to take these initiatives on their own well i think the one that i i wanted to talk about because i think i've i've seen companies quick to say no and i i think they need to pause and really reflect on it is remote work as an accommodation. Because in some instances, and I think uh, ADHD is one of them, that it may be a reasonable accommodation. You know, how is that, that the question we have to ask ourselves is, how is that going to cause the company hardship? Mm -hmm. That's a yeah. hard argument to make. And quite frankly, if you are saying, hey, I need everybody in the office to get work done. 
But if someone's telling you, uh, I think I work better at home, I know I can get more done and focused, you're doing a disservice to your company by forcing someone to show up in a way that is not as productive for them. Mm-hmm. And it makes them look bad because now they have to perform in an environment that is a, a higher hurdle for them to overcome yeah. than maybe other peers. And so, um, yeah, if, if remote work is an option, even if it's for a, if it's for a portion of the day or uh, for some days out of the week, I really do think, you know, I, I agree with you, Summer, that you should use it. Of course, it doesn't work for everybody, right? I mean, I think there's certain certain roles and certainly, you know, certain jobs that it's just not, it isn't reasonable. But I think if you can answer yes, then that's ideal in these situations for accommodations. And we should be looking for how do we, how do we answer this as a yes? Mm-hmm. And your team members will be grateful. The rest of your team will be rewarded. And I think one of the items that Julie, uh, the, art, the author of this, um, mentions is the necessity to provide this type of training to supervisors and managers to make them aware so that if a team member does come to them with a request or if they start to observe uh, potentially the need to engage in these conversations, they are knowledgeable enough to recognize it and bring in the appropriate folks who can actually Mm -hmm. have the conversations versus saying no and potentially putting the company at risk. Yeah. There's another thing on this list too that I would want to have companies really consider uh, is just as you look at these items on the list, some of them, yes, they are uh, reasonable accommodations, but they're also just good management practices. And the fact that we have to make good management a reasonable accommodation <laughs> is a testament that maybe we're not managing our teams the way that we should. One example is clear expectations and checklists. Another is detailed calendar of all deadlines. Another is major deadlines broken up into smaller deadlines. Um, allowing scheduled and spontaneous breaks. These are the sorts of things that um, just help anyone um, be better at work because there's clarity around the, the goals and expectations. But maybe we're not seeing those uh, in the totality of our workforce. And so there's even room for us to be better, be better managers. But we want you to take a look at the, at the link uh, to the post. And, and review it and see what you can do with your team to be a better, a better leader in an environment where people may have ADHD. Because like Summer said, I don't want to run the risk of being in a situation where um, we are not making those accommodations and, and should be doing it. Um, what, are your, what are your parting thoughts, Summer, on this topic? Well, I, I think... We've shared enough to help our audience be curious, and I encourage you to go out and check out uh, Julie Harris on LinkedIn. Uh, she's one of the top voices on LinkedIn, and if you check out her profile and her content, she actually speaks to many different medical conditions and what companies can do to accommodate. So I think there's some really great free resources out there. Um, she's putting out some really amazing content. Definitely, definitely. All right, so we've had a great show. Uh, we had Alexandria Levin on talking about her new book, uh, and we talked about the accommodations that you should be providing for folks with ADHD. 
stay tuned next week for even more topics uh, that you need to pay attention to that we've been covering while you were working and check out our back catalog of shows and YouTube clips for uh, more insight on topics that you might already be tackling that we've covered on the show. So until next week, have a great week. Thanks everyone. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And as always, you can find more info and additional resources at whilewewereworking.com.